So we've got half of this, this that's a lesson that's, that's kind of interesting for church nerds. And then we've got another half that's actually very practical and useful. So I've given a lot more of the church nerd interesting stuff in the written lesson than I'll actually cover during the class. So if you're interested in such things, take it home and uh, see if it makes any sense to you. We'll touch on that stuff lightly, but we'll spend a little bit more time on the stuff that actually makes a difference more so in your life than, than the, 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 well, you'll get it. So here's your introduction. I remember vividly, and my daughter Gracie is here. Um, she'll uh, appreciate this because she inherited this from me. I remember vividly when I was in about seventh or eighth grade, I was riding with dad from Lubbock, Texas to Abilene. I think that had a work matter or something. And we were between Sweetwater and Abilene. If you've ever ridden the highway out there, it's, it's, um, it's, it's beautiful. And I noticed after a while that in between every set of telephone posts, I was clenching my toes in my shoes. As in, then we'd go, then we'd get past the next pole. Then we'd go, we'd get past the next pole. Then we'd go. And it was driving me crazy. But I could not stop. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's had disorders all of his life. And I can't argue that with you. That's the only explanation I can come up with. This has to have deep psychological overlay. And I am sure that Becky will explain it to me when I get home because I've never told her about this. But she'll have it wired and figured out. But I couldn't stop because I thought, well, you know, I'm in the middle between the poles and, and I've got this symmetry going. And it would just be a real shame to lose that symmetry uh, uh, just because I, it was driving me crazy. And I learned then that I actually have this like for balance and order and symmetry. I like everything to be in its place and there to be a place for everything. The thermostat in my car is one that's digital. Okay, I will never set that thermostat to 71. It's going to be 70 or it's going to be 72. But there's something odd about 71. And odd, I just can't do. So when I then got to the point where I was majoring in Greek and Hebrew in college, it, it, it did not comport well with my balance and symmetry in some ways. In some ways it did, but in some ways it did not. Because I would really like it to be something where there is a substitute for each Greek word. And so if you have a word that's logos you ought to be able to put word in every time you see logos. By the way, if you, if, in church this morning, Pastor Avery, y'all were there, a bunch of you, the Greek word for quarreling about words that was in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14, it's just one Greek word, logomachia. But logomachia 
is a compound word that means fighting or going to war with words. So they translate it quarreling, but that's what it means. It's a quarreling over words, they translate it, but it means fighting about words, uh, literally. And so uh, I would love there to be this perfect balance. There's just not. And we've already looked at vocabulary where it takes two or three English words to do justice to the Greek word. And then we've looked at vocabulary where it doesn't matter how many words you use, you don't really get the fullness of the Greek word. Well, this morning what I want to look at are Greek words that have a theology attached to them. So here's my uh, throw out for you. If I talk to you in church about being justified, that's a theology term. And many of you are going to know that means, uh, as Pastor David says it, just as justified never sinned, justified means righteous before God. But if we go out into the supermarket and I say, you know, I was justified in what I did, it's got a whole different meaning. It's not talking about being right before the presence of God. It's talking about, you know, having a, I was justified. It was, I was okay doing that. I had reason. I had cause. So that's a word that can have one meaning that's very theological, but it can have a very mundane, everyday meaning as well. So it's not surprising that in the Greek New Testament, there are words like that. Greek words that have not just a a, a normal meaning, but also have in times a theological meaning. And so the translators when they hit those words, have to decide, is this the normal meaning of the word, or does it have special theology here? And then they make that translation. And we just hope that they got it right, and and I think they, by and large, do. They're really good. But here is a simple example of this for you. This is a Greek word, diabolos. You see it? The D is, remember, D looks like our D with the guy being drunk when he does the top part of it. So it got a little, little whoopsie-doo in it. So it's D-A, D-I-A, and then that's B-O-L, because their L just has the kickstand on it. L-O-S, Diabolos, Diabolos. You got it? Say it. Diabolos. Okay, diabolos is a normal Greek word. It means an accuser or a slanderer. I can show you in normal Greek writings. This is a writing from Josephus who lived in the New Testament time that the New Testament was being written, the later parts of the New Testament. He was a Jew. He wrote Jewish history in Greek while he lived in Rome. So that's like a threefer. But if you look at it, he's writing to his nation or to the Romans so that they would understand Jewish history. And he writes about Daniel, the Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel of the Old Testament. 
And in writing about Daniel, he talks about how Daniel was, the, the people that were Daniel's contemporaries tried to get Daniel in trouble with the king because they wanted Daniel in trouble. That's why they laid the trap to get Daniel in the lion's den. And in the process of talking about that, it says, um, let's see, uh, although those who were resentful of the esteem in which he was held, he being Daniel, was held by Darius the king, they sought some pretext for slander and accusation against him. Now, that word slander, we're just going to slide over into the Greek. And you are going to see, when you start looking, uh, Basilio, that's the king. He saw it. You've already seen it before I did. Diabolase. And it's got an ada instead of the o, but that's just the tag at the end. The real root of the word is that diabol. And that just means slander. They had no pretext for slandering later on. It says, you know, um, to injure him in the king's esteem by their abuse and slander. You slide over to the Greek. Diabole. Slander. That's what the word means. Okay? We've got it in our Greek New Testament. Um, uh, let's see. Let me switch to the Greek New Testament here. First uh, Timothy three eleven. It's just uh, one Timothy off from where we were in church this morning. First Timothy three eleven. Now this is hard to pick up, but look what it says. Um, may don't dia. You got the dia because I got to flip the page. Dia belos. Don't slander. Now, look at how that's translated. 1 Timothy 3.11 in our Revised Standard Version. They get it right. 1 Timothy 3.11. Their wives, that was the Gunaikos that started the sentence, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers. Got it? Okay. Let me show you another usage of the word. Same word in the Greek. Matthew chapter 4 gets used a bunch. Here it is. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the diabolos. The devil. But there it's translated devil. The Greek word for accuser or slanderer, is translated devil. And not just there, but throughout. Verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the throne. Again, the devil, verse 8, took him to a very high mountain and showed him. Verse 11, then the devil, the diabolos, the accuser, the slanderer, Not only here, but if you go back and read the Greek Old Testament, where the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew was translated by Jews into Greek around 200 B.C., because the world was a Greek-speaking world after Alexander the Great had conquered it. In that, when Job is being tempted, 
it says that it's Diabolos, the devil that went before God's throne. The accuser who said, yeah, you can't find anything wrong with Job, but that's only because you've protected him. That's the accuser talking. So the accuser in the Matthew passages is translated devil. And it's actually kind of uh, interesting if you if you want to go back. Let's uh, go back to the Elmo for a moment. The Greek word diabolos, D-I-A-B-O-L-O-S, winds up making it into our language. It's just by the... T- Oops, sorry. I was doing a drunk D. Um, it's doful. By the time you get into Old English, it's devil by the time you get to today. But the word comes from diabolos, the word devil. So anyway, back to the PowerPoint. That's a sample. That's a sample of how the translators have to do it. Now let's go to another sample. In this sample, we're going to get a little... By the way, we're in the nerd section of class. If you want to sleep through the nerd session, it is entirely permitted. And we'll wake you up when the other section comes. We'll like do a corporate clap. Okay? Here's your, here's your next nerd word. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. Can you say it with me? Ecclesia. Very good. Very good. Ecclesia is a Greek word. Now, it's actually a compound word. It's put together from a Greek preposition and a Greek verb. And it means, if you go to the Elmo for a moment, ek means out of. Oops. Ek means out of. And that's the first start of ekklesia. Out of. Uh, We get... The Latin for that is X, and we get exit from it. That's where you go out of, all right? Ek, out of. Now, you add that to another word, kaleo is the, the basic verb, and kaleo, actually it may have the accent there, excuse me. Kaleo means called. Or to call. Kaleo, actually. I have to be real technical because people watch this on the internet. They didn't know what he was talking about. Kaleo itself means I call. But the verb means to call. Okay? So, to call. So, some people look at this word and say, Ah, these are those who are called out. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint. You can take the word apart and get called out, but that's not what the word really means. Many sermons have mistakenly said it means called out. Literally, it sort of does, but butterfly literally means flying butter. You just can't do that and dissect it that way and be fair to the language if it's got another meaning. Don't get me wrong. One time, we had a contest at home, and Becky took a stick of butter. And you should see that butter fly when you throw it just right. But generally, that's not what I mean. I'm joking. She never threw any butter. This is the word that's translated church. Now, church gets all muddled up in our vocabulary. 
Which church do you go to? Might mean which congregation, or it might mean are you Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic? Or you've got the uh, 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 idea of of being the, the church building. Some people talk about going to church in the sense of going to the building. I got to go to church to work out because we have a gym here, an FLC. Or, hey, we've got a basketball game up at church in the gym. See, we use the word church that way. That's not the Greek word church. Now, i got to tell you, this bothered me growing up. When I was in high school, I decided I wanted uh, uh, to read and understand the Bible uh, as best as I could. It was a a mission of mine. It was a, a focus of mine. And so I went and I bought some books about the Bible. But I bought them out of ignorance. I didn't know what I was buying. And I bought some books of some people who are hypercritical of Scripture. And I wasn't smart enough to know that. And so, in fact, I'm not sure that some of these people even that write this stuff even believe in the Scripture. It's just an academic exercise for them. And so you can buy all sorts of things that, that, that when you read it, you think, oh my gosh, now that I'm reading that, I feel like a fool. And that's the way I was one time in high school. I was reading something and I felt like a fool because I had been so uninformed. Here's what it said. It said that the gospels were not written accurately to reflect what happened in the time of Jesus. That they were written afterwards by the church to help sell the church. I thought, well, that's not what I believe. I believe that the Gospels accurately reflect what happened with Jesus. One of the examples in this book was Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And this really caused me problems. I want to show it to you, and I want to tell you what the author said, what the academic said. This was an academic author. Jesus talking here, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's one-on-one. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, listen. Take one or two others along with you, that every charge, bless you, may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, this book said, there wasn't a church when Jesus was alive. The church isn't established until Pentecost, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This tells you that Jesus didn't say this. Because how could Jesus talk about, tell it to the church? And how would it have meant anything to his listeners? He'd have been talking gobbledygook. 
And so I thought, oh, I need to read something from someone who explains this. So I went and found something from someone who's a very uh, 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 strong Bible believer. I read what they had to say. They said, well, some people think this means Jesus didn't say it, but Jesus did say it. He just spoke prophetically because he knew the church would come. I thought, well, that that seems a bit of a reach. Maybe it's true. Jesus did speak prophetically. But it just didn't sit well with me. I was missing something. Until I studied Greek. Let me tell you why. Let's go back to the PowerPoint for a minute. Ecclesia is translated church, but it's a normal Greek word. It's just sometimes for theology they translate it church. It's a normal Greek word that talks about an assembly. It might be a regular assembly. It might be a casual assembly. They'd use it for their legislative bodies. When the U.S. Congress convenes, they go to church. Believe it or not. In the Greek sense. Church is a, is a, is a, that ecclesia doesn't mean those called out in the sense of what many preachers say. And look, you're going to hear it from preachers. You're going to hear it regularly because it just fits well. Because we, the church, are called out from the world. But that's not what the Greek word means any more than butterfly means chunking a quarter pound of butter. The Greek word means a regular assembly, a gathering. It can be one that's regular. It can even be a casual one. But it was used in the Greek scriptures of the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Jesus had, Paul used it. It was the scriptures of the early church. When Paul says, study to show yourself approved unto God, rightly handling the word of truth, he's not talking about the New Testament. That hadn't been written yet, or at least put together. He's talking about the Old Testament. And when you read about the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, gathering together to hear the words of the Lord through Moses, do you know what it calls them? Church, ecclesia, an assembling of people. It's translated the assembly, but it's the same word as church. You'll find in Greek writings contemporaneous with the New Testament, church used in a variety of ways to reference, I mean, thousands of inscriptions. To reference a gathering or a group of people. What Jesus is saying here, if we go back to the text, is pretty simple. If your brother sins against you, take one or two others. Or first go yourself. If that doesn't work, take one or two others. If that doesn't work, take them in front of the whole group. And if he won't listen to the whole group that's gathered together, Jesus was speaking prophetically in one sense. I mean, he was conscious that Jesus 
Jesus did not live his life thinking it would end with his death, burial, and resurrection. He knew about the church. He knew about God's plan. He knew he was dying for us. He makes it clear in his prayer, his high priestly prayer in John uh, 17, where he prays, Lord, my prayer is that my people will be one. So he's telling them, hey, if they won't, let's take it to the group. He's talking to a group of people. And he's able to say, you know, when Peter says, you're the son of God, he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. I'll build my assembly. I'll build my gathering. This will be my people. So when we read that word church in the Bible, we need to read it thinking about it as an assembly. If we go back to the PowerPoint, we've got it not only in the Old Testament, but look at, for example, how are we doing time-wise? Yeah, we're doing okay. Acts 19.32. Acts 19.32 shows you the power of what I'm saying because this is the story where Paul's in Ephesus. Paul has started affecting the local economy in a negative way. All the idol worshipers are starting to worship the Lord. So those people who were losing money making the idols haul Paul in front of the whole town to try and get him killed. And in Acts 19, verse 32, we read it, we read about it. Start it in verse 28 and get a run up to it. When they heard this, they were enraged. They were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this, that's one of their idols. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. They drug with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. They were afraid he'd be pulled apart. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him, don't venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. You see that word assembly? It's talking about the mass people at the theater there in Exodus. That, I mean, Ephesus, that were looking to do him in. But that's the word church. That's ecclesia. It's not those called out from the world. It's that gathering of all of the people. The assembly was in confusion. So now when you start reading your New Testament passages about church, we do it understanding that church means a specific group, Christian group, that's assembling, that's gathering. Ordinarily, it's going to involve worship and discussion of matters of concern to the community. So you'll see church used to reference the community or gathering of believers in a place. Paul will write to the church at Corinth or to the churches in Galatia. Galatia being a region, so there are a number of towns with churches. You'll also find Paul writing about there being one church in Ephesians. Because while there are congregations that meet, and you can call each of them churches, there is one assembly, one gathering that exceeds the bounds of this building, that goes past the rolls on our church log, that goes past the borders of Houston, Texas, U.S., 
There is a church universal that's not only worldwide, but expands beyond time. It includes those who have come before, and should the Lord tarry, will include those who come after. There is one church that Paul then uses the word, is the body of Christ. Only Paul uses that phrase, by the way, body of Christ, to reference the church. But he does it, making us understand a number of uh, parallels, but one of them being, there's one body of Christ that transcends all time. There is one church that transcends all time and geographical boundaries. But church is never the building. It's never a denomination. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I am a, on the rolls at Champion Forest Baptist Church. I am a member of Champion Forest Baptist Church. But my affiliation is with the church that is the bride of Christ. That's the ultimate affiliation for all believers. And we are a part of this fellowship. We're part of this local congregation. But it's with a view that there's a church universal. Never confuse the word church with a building. Never confuse the word church with a denomination. You with me? And then the translators have to figure out, when do we translate it assembly? When do we translate it church? Which is just a Christian assembly. The gathering together. This is why Paul says, when you gather together as a church... Do this, do that, do this, do that. And he uses that language over and over in Corinthians. Because that's what church is. It's a gathering together. When you gather together as a gathering. Do this, that, and the other. Y'all with me? Okay, nerd stuff's over. We're going to have one big clap so everybody wakes up. Okay. Now we're going to talk a little bit more practical. Oh, whoops. I left out one of the nerd words. I'll do it real fast. If you slept through the nerddom. This, this is just an inkling of what you missed. That word, apostolos. Apostolos. Say it with me. Apostolos. That word has a normal meaning. But it's also translated apostle. Now, if you Google apostle Houston, Texas. Up comes a number of different things. There are some churches. St. Peter the Apostle Catholic Church. St. James the Apostle Catholic Church. But then there's about our Apostle United Bible Fellowship. Where the Apostle Julius Glass presides. He had been a pastor but was elevated to Apostle. There are a number of churches that have Apostles in them. In addition to those churches in mainstream Christianity that actually have the role of an apostle, not that many, there is also the Mormon church, which believes that there are still 12 apostles. And they have 12 men who maintain that function and role. It's the quorum of the 12 apostles. Because they believe that there should be 12 apostles today, just as there was in biblical times. And those apostles get to set out doctrine and, and they're an ultimate uh, uh, authority. 
uh, one of several within the, the, the Latter-day Saint uh, church movement. You know, and yet as Christians, we tend to most normative Protestant churches or Catholic churches are going to say that there are 12 apostles. That's not really an office that's still filled today. We, I mean, we don't have any apostles by that title in this church. And, you know, we got like 12,000 people on the rolls. You'd think we'd have at least an apostle or two. So what do we do with that? Where's the confusion come from? Because you will find in the New Testament, depending upon the translation you use, different people referred to as apostles other than Paul and the twelve. But it depends on your translation. Because apostle is a normal Greek word. Apostolos is a messenger or an envoy. It's even used, by the way, of a, of a naval expedition that's sent out as an envoy. Yeah, it's kind of hot in here, Gwen. Thank you. Wave a little of that up here. Um, it's, it's a messenger, an envoy, and that's what the word means. Apostolos doesn't mean something as a special officer until you start looking at the Christian words for the 12 that were specially chosen by Jesus. So you can look at passages like 2 Corinthians 8.23. We'll look at that real quick. 2 Corinthians 8.23 is one that uses the word apostolos. Paul says the following. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And for our brothers, they are apostolos of the churches. The glory of Christ. They're messengers. You can see it again in Philippians 2. Paul writes and says uh, uh, much the same thing. Philippians 2.25. He'll reference Epaphroditus. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier as uh, and your messenger. Apostolos. Apostolos. Just means messenger. But there's something different from a Christian perspective of church because of passages like Mark 3.14. Mark 3.14 is one where Jesus said, um, let's start with verse 13. And Jesus, he went up on the mountain and called to, by the way, it's the Greek word kaleo. And called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. So there were twelve that Jesus selected. And he named them apostles because he was going to send them out. But they got the name apostle because it describes what they did. It was a normal Greek word. Their responsibility, their selection was as 12. Those 12 apostles have since been given that name by church history. 
And so it is rare to find a normative Protestant or Catholic church that uses the term apostle, meaning messenger. It's generally meant to be one of the apostles. But later on, Paul will say that God has appointed different people to different tasks. Some of them are missionaries. Some of them serve. Some of them are apostles. Now, there's an interesting question. Should the word be translated apostle there or messenger? Because he's not talking about one of the twelve, most likely. Or maybe he means those twelve and him, who he was also called by Jesus and given that title. But Jesus calls the apostles, he calls them by name in Matthew 10 too. And so this is a very select group for a very express purpose. He called out to him his twelve disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles, messengers, are these. But you see, apostles is our English word that we're now using because we're translating it theologically, trying to show a reference to those special twelve. Now, you can use it in another sense in the Greek, and in that sense, I guess we could use it of people today. And yet, we would lose the context of there being 12 special ones who were anointed to provide scripture and direct testimony to the life of Jesus. So our New Testament is what it is because it bears the witness of the apostles. The 12 that Jesus specifically gave that authority to. Okay, I'm getting messed up and I haven't gotten to the practical stuff. Let's spend 11 minutes on practical. You ready? We're going to look now at another Greek word, charis. Say charis with me. Charis. Very good. Charis. That X that goes below the line is in English the letter CH. It's kind of a cuss sound. Not CH like Charles, but CH like cuh. Okay? So that's charis. Charis. Charis, if you look Charis up in a dictionary from New Testament times, you'll read the following. One, a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. Graciousness, winsomeness, charm. We see that usage of the word. We're going to flip back and forth here to save time. If we can, uh, people in the, the booth, be ready. Yeah, we're going to flip flop back and forth really fast. So here is an example. Can, are you able to read it? I made it bigger this week. Good. Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's the Greek word charis. Charity is the form there. But that's the word for grace. And it's referencing there a, a characteristic of graciousness. Jesus was winsome. He was gracious. People liked him. Okay, go back to the PowerPoint, please. Second definition. A a beneficent disposition towards someone, to show someone a a, a grace or a favor or graciousness, a, a goodwill. We see that if we go back to the PowerPoint in a passage like Acts 6, 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing... Great wonders and signs among the people. Here, grace is his 
gracious disposition. It's his, his gracious disposition because of his uh, graciousness, gracious disposition, karitos is the word, because of that, he was serving. He was doing for others. If we go back to the PowerPoint, that's number two. He was graciously disposed to others so he would heal and help. Look at definition number three. A practical application of goodwill, a sign of favor, gracious, a deed or a gift, a benefaction. Now, here we've got grace in a different sense. Here we've got grace in the sense of a gift or a deed. So if we go to the PowerPoint, I mean to the Elmo, thank you. Acts 24, 27. When two years had elapsed, this is uh, Paul's been in custody for two years now. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix desired to do the Jews a favor. He left Paul in prison. Favor is charis. He decided to do them a grace. A favor. So that word grace, charis, can be translated favor. It can be translated, uh, 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 go back to the, to the, thank you, PowerPoint. Um, number four, exceptional effect Produced by generosity or favor. In other words, I'm, I'm going to have an effect on you by what I do. It's harder for me to show you that one. Um, well, no, nah, it works. Let's just do it. Ephesians 1, 6 through 7. To the praise of his glorious grace, God's graciousness, God's gift, deed, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The effect of his generosity upon us is a grace. This is according to the riches affected by his generosity. Affected by his generosity. So it can mean that as well. Uh, If we go back to the PowerPoint, I mean, yes. Five, a response to generosity or beneficence. Thanks, gratitude. If you go to modern Greece today and you say keristo, which is charis with to at the end, me, I. That means thanks. That's how you say thank you. Charis, grace, to, I thank you. Keristo or efkeristo, sefkeristo. It's a longer form. But keristo, thank you. That's what it means. So, for example, if we go back to the PowerPoint of Elmo, Luke 2.52, Jesus, whoops, I've already did that one. Well, I didn't pull that one out to show you. But there's a place where it's just translated, thank you, it's in your handout, I'm sorry. Didn't get it printed this morning. Um, And it just means thank you. So now, here's your teaser for next week. And I'm going to give you more handout next week because I didn't have time to get to this. But next week's all more practical. What about a passage like this? 
Here's Ephesians 2, 5, and 8. Ephesians 2, 5, and 8. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What do you think the meaning of it is? Which one of those five? By grace, by God's gracious attitude? Or by a gift or deed that God did? It's going to be gift or deed. I'll give you the, the hint. It's a reference to the death of Christ on our behalf. By that we've been saved. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace, gift, deed, you have been saved through diapistuo, through faith. And so um, it's, it's going to be an interesting study. Uh, we're going to elucidate some in Romans 4. Because in Romans 4, he'll even say, if we go back to the Elmo for one more moment, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a grace, caris, but as a his due, it's a wage. It's translated gift there. Same word. So we're going to explore that word grace next week. It's a, 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 it is an absolutely critical part uh, of our Christian understanding and theology. It is exactly what Pastor Avery said this morning. It is digging in deep and understanding why we believe what we believe. But we can't leave without our Greek geek cartoons for the day. Hey, geek, how can I keep straight that apostolos means messenger? Hmm. If you were a postal worker, you wouldn't have to ask. Hey, geek, how can I keep straight that charis means gift? Huh. If you were a charismatic, you wouldn't have to ask. They're the ones who believe in the supernatural gifts. Gifts, charismatic. Hey, geek, how can I keep straight that ecclesia means group? Huh. Write it on your arm. I had nothing on that one. Sorry. Okay. Here's your grief for home. (laughs) Points for home. On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there's a lot that can come against an assembling together of people. Doors can be locked. Buildings can be burned down. The gathering can be declared illegal. The sponsors of the gathering can be put to death in public arenas. All of this has been tried for thousands of years. And yet the saints of God assemble together and praise his name. The gates of hell will not stop it. And I'm going to treasure the fact that I get to come together with you each Sunday. Wednesday nights. But the, yes, that we come together. Thank you, Jan. That we get to come together is, is not something to be taken lightly. We assemble together to praise our Lord. Next. 
God has appointed in the church first apostles. Well, now there, I think it's apostles because they were the ones that came first. They're the ones who set out our scriptures. They're the ones who proclaim the faith. They're the ones who established the church on Pentecost. They're the ones who set the measure of who Jesus was and what he did. And so I'm going to focus on the message of the 12. I'm going to take Pastor Avery to heart today. And I am going to study to show myself an approved workman rightly handling the word of truth. And I want to share some of that with you if you'll come back next Sunday. Final. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. By the gift that is in Christ Jesus. By the cross that is in Christ Jesus. And that's where we need to be. If you're working on memory, you're at 1 John 1, 1 through 4, 15. And may I bless you before we depart. Father, I ask you to bless this assembly, this church that's gathered together and it is out of a desire, Lord, to know you better and to better understand your word. And that's our prayer. That we will take serious the fact that we have this incredible treasure you have laid at our feet. The treasure of being able to worship and gather together. And the treasure of being able to study the words that your apostles have set forward for us. What an honor, Lord. So bless my friends and family today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.